0: Good day to you church. My name is Brett. I am pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are guests with us. Thank you for coming. We are really grateful that you chose to make us your church home for an hour today. All right, I realize many of you are saying, wow, he's on video. Yeah, I happen to be with the Washington Redskins this week. I'm in Philadelphia and I'm doing my chaplaincy thing. Pastor Jim LaFoon was scheduled to preach today. But he got a little bit under the weather, so we're praying for his well-being, and I thought I'd just go ahead and do a video for you. I realize you may think it's a little bit impersonal, but as you get involved, I think you're going to think I'm here. So just hang in here with me for a minute. Um, Before we get into the message, there are a couple of things I'd like to say. One, that this is our anniversary month, church. 37 years we've been in existence. Wow, pretty neat. And none of those 37 can can be attributed to our good efforts. It's the grace of God that we exist, and for that I am really, really grateful. And in concert with that, every September we have a thing we call a Thanksgiving offering, and that is going to be on September 15th, next weekend. It's a moment for us to let God know how thankful we are for what He's done with us, because there are... There are many things that have come against this congregation over the last 37 years that could have torpedoed us and sunk us. And yet he has sustained us. And I am grateful. There's no church on the planet I want to be better affiliated or more affiliated with than you. I like you a lot. A lot of pastors don't like their church. I like you a lot. You are amazing to me. And I'm grateful that God has given me the privilege to call you mine as as my church and that he's given me the opportunity to shepherd you thank you for letting me do that and so during our anniversary we, we have a moment where we can tangibly say that rather than just verbally say that Leviticus chapter 7 outlines a thing called a votive offering and then under that heading there is a thanksgiving offering votive simply means free will meaning that it wasn't it wasn't depending up upon a certain day like the day of atonement or the day of passover or a feast or somebody's sin for a sin offering or somebody's guilt for a guilt offering it was really prompted by the heart of the worshiper if he was grateful he could do it any time he wanted and that meant he could do it as often as he wanted now Amer- the American or Western church really doesn't have a tradition of Thanksgiving offerings there's no prescription for it except that which we find in scripture and we don't use that often because we just usually take an offering for a specific thing, meaning tithes at offerings or a project, a building a missions trip, but a Thanksgiving offering ought to be that which should be prompted in the heart of every believer any time. not prompted from here it doesn't have to be, it can be, but you shouldn't be dependent upon that and since we don't we are not used to that we make at least once a year an opportunity for you to be able to contribute in a way that is substantive now the words of our mouth need to communicate thanksgiving to God regularly but he also says if you are thankful i am also prescribing a way whereby you can tangibly represent that and so leviticus chapter 7 is one place where you can look at that and then in psalm 50 verse 23 Uh, the psalmist begins to to depict uh, somebody who is given a thanksgiving offering and how God responds to that. It says, he makes his way orderly and straight. He who offers a thanksgiving offering to me. And so when we offer to God something of substance that shows how grateful we are, God responds to us. Now, it might be that you're grateful for something individually that has nothing to do with this church's existence. Good for you. Thank him for that, tangibly. Or it might be that you find your greatest degree of gratefulness in your life at this point, the fact that you found us. Good for you. Thank him for that. Or there could be a combination of both and more. Thank him for that. And so we provide this moment on September 15th for you to say, Lord, this is how I feel about how you've treated me and how how I can now respond to you in proportion to how I feel about my gratefulness come ready to give on the, on September 15th secondly today we've got our our moment of open house for our small groups now our small groups are really the relational lifeblood systemically for our church what happens here is really important what happens in the lobby after church is equally as important you connect with people you see old friends you catch up you pray for one another, you support one another, all those things are good. But discipleship can only happen at a certain level here. I have relegated this pulpit to be in a discipleship pulpit that is not so religious in its orientation that it doesn't have application to the world. It really helps you, but it doesn't help you as much as it could because I can't get in your life personally. There are 5,000 of you. I can't meet with you all. But our small groups are the places at which people can find folks that have common vision, common values, understand the scriptures, and can leverage their progress for your gain. Small groups allow folks to get in one another's lives and support one another and help one another. 10 to 18 folks, a part of a small group at a home or a business or at a Starbucks or in the lobby of the church, finding help and relational strength. It's not just a system. It's not just a program. It is the way we help you. And so I am begging you for this open house. Go out there after the service. We've got them all over the city, all over the metropolitan area—Maryland, DC, Virginia—places where you can find a relational home outside of Sunday morning. And I'm begging you, take advantage of these moments. And it's a place not only where you can find discipleship, be discipled, but it's a place where you—you now, as you are discipled, disciple others and be trained up in leadership to lead a small group. It's a, it's a beautiful vehicle to do what we do in terms of values and, and vision. Uh, we have five values that are most important to us. Discipleship, leadership development, family, evangelism, and the Lordship of Christ. In small group, almost all those things happen. And I'm begging you, get a part of a small group. It's for your gain. It's for your family's aid, their help, their progress. And your community needs you to grow up faster than you can ever do on your own. I beg you, go out there and figure out which one you can be a part of. All right, turn with me over to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to continue our series on the parables of Christ, and I think this is going to be the last one. And today we're going to talk about salt. The title of the sermon is Salt, Applied and Reached For. Salt, Applied and Reached For. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 13. Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus is speaking, and he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Lord, help us as we study. Three things on this passage about which I wish to speak to you. One, how distinguished you are at least supposed to be in identity from the rest of creation. And then what happens to people who are supposed to be distinguished in art, they become indistinguished. And then if they become indistinguishable, they generally become unuseful. And we never want to get in that category. Jesus is doing what he can to describe uh, what the kingdom is like, and what people ought to be like in the kingdom, and how that kingdom with people in it relates to the world. And he's using stories. Now, he's the best theologian that has ever been. None have been better at understanding the connection between reality, which is really good theology, and the stuff in which people are living, which is really usually bad theology. Poor practice. They're not doing well in how they process life and make decisions. And so Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand who they are to this world that doesn't make any sense. Who they should be to a world that's going in the wrong direction. How they need to be signs that point in the right direction and they need to apply their lives to those people so that they know what it feels like to be right and do right. We aren't to be people that just talk to folks. They ought to be able to experience us, not just hear our theology. We have to get close enough to folks whereby they understand what it looks like to live most right. We need to invite people into our homes, into our personal lives with Bible study, letting our experience be a springboard to their success. We ought to have fruit that accompanies the truth we believe. It's really hollow, though it might be true. When somebody preaches and talks about living right, but they are doing it, I'm not going to go so far as to call it hypocrisy, because all of us got a little bit of that in us. I mean, nobody lives as right as they believe. Nobody, though we should. No excuse not to, but we don't. All of us fall short. And every time we do, we need to run to God in a hurry and say, help me, fix me, I repent. I turn away from that which I've done wrong, and I choose to be right. That's the response whenever we don't live up to what we believe. But there are those folk who choose not to live up to what they believe. They talk a good talk, but they don't walk anything like what Jesus said. And and John, the beloved, he not only wrote the book of John, but he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1 John chapter 2 he says he who believes in Jesus must walk just as he did. He connects the thoughts and the good ideas we call good theology with the practice. He said if you love him, if you're going to identify with him, do what he did. Walk in such a way that it makes people think that he's living on the inside of you and controlling your actions and has the steering wheel to your life. So Jesus is trying to help these disciples understand That there should be no difference between believing and doing. No difference between a person who actually accepts Jesus and a person that actually is a disciple of Jesus. In the New Testament, there is no difference between a believer and a disciple, though Western Christianity has made it so. You can actually come down front in, in many churches and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I love you. You're amazing. Thank you for all you've done for me. I'm yours now. And then walk away and and have no difference in your life. You made a prayer. You prayed a prayer. made a commitment. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter to anybody in your world. It didn't matter to you. You may have a reservation in heaven. When I say matter, I mean it didn't make a difference to anything. And God wants there to be no distinguishing between what you believe and what you do. Here Jesus describes this in parable form taking great theological points and making them simple to people. And he uses the illustration and composite the, 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 the stuff of the earth called salt and what salt does. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't just say you have salt. He says you are it. We are, we are, we are identified as a mineral, don't be mad he identifies you in parable form in many other ways but here he's trying to make a point about how important the disciples are to the world this is what you are to the world it doesn't matter what the world is to you this is what you need to be to the world in the next passage he says you're the light of the world and so wherever darkness is we are to illuminate with who we are not just what we say but who we are It's an identification. It's a reformation of whatever the enemy had in mind regarding our identity. And God beginning to change that so that we can be a benefit to people in the world that are going in the wrong direction, doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, believing the wrong thing. We are to be salt. Now there's some properties of salt that made Jesus say this. One, salt adds flavor to things, does it not? I mean, we, we like salt so much that the doctors have to say, stop using it so much. It'll mess up your arteries. It'll constrict them, cause issues with blood pressure elevation. Yes, just don't use it so much. Salt makes things taste just a little better. And when people come to you, they ought to be able to taste something. You ought to flavor everything that is reality for them. Again, it's not just words. Can they taste your life? Now, those of you who are Bible scholars, you reference the idea of taste, what the, the psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste the Lord and see that he is good. Well, I'm convinced that that passage is best utilized when people understand what it means to be a witness. That Jesus says, I want you to be witnesses of me to the earth in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will make you my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. We are to be the, 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 I, the, the, the confirming of, of God on earth to the rest of humanity. We are the proof that he actually is who he says he is and did what he said he did. Now, I can use my apologetics to help people understand the lies that they need to, to renounce. But there is nothing more powerful than a life lived right. Nothing. If my words cannot back up my life, then there's a hollowness that ought not be there. And when people sink their teeth into my life, they get close enough. They say, wait, 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 something's a disconnect here. I can't figure out why you're saying stuff that's right, but you're not living stuff that's right. People know that there ought to be no disconnect. And so, when the psalmist says, taste the Lord and see that he is good in Psalm 34, verse 8, it translates to us in that Jesus ought to be in your life so much that when people taste your life, they taste him. And all they want is who he is. Because he has flavored your life to such a degree that there is no more corruption in it. It tastes better, and there's no more corruption. Now, corruption is the second thing. Corruption is that which happens. (laughs) Doesn't it just happen? Uh, Let me me explain that to which I'm referring. You put a piece of meat on the counter and uh, leave it there for two days and see what happens. Maybe you cut some fruit, some cantaloupe, watermelon, honeydew. Leave it out in the open for two or three days, don't refrigerate it, see what happens. That thing was perfectly fine when you cut it. Two days later, it's got a little film on it. It smells a little funny. You bite into it. It's a little sour. What happened? You didn't add anything negative to it, but there's stuff in the air. There's stuff in the environment that affects things that have life in them, and when the stuff in the environment finds stuff that has life in it because it doesn't affect inorganic objects, rocks don't spoil when it finds things that had a form of life in them, it attacks it and begins to make it succumb to its, its will. It forces it to become what it wants it to become. And everything in this world is forcing humanity to become what it was never intended to be. cross grained to God's will, in opposition to him, enemies of him. The corruption that exists is something that is just in the air. It's every place. And in order to stop the corruptive elements, we can't just talk to the air. We actually have to apply some salt or some preservative to the thing that happens to have a form of life in it. And when we do so, the corruptive elements have to stay away. They can't stand the environment of sodium chloride. They can't live in it any longer. And we are to be that preserving agent to everybody with whom we come in contact that stops the corruptive elements in their lives. I'm not saying we order them to stop doing things. You don't have to take control of somebody's life. It's just when they begin to taste and they see that your life is different, they then say, please help me. To become like you because I want the corruption that is in my life stopped. I see the benefit. Your kids love you. You have a 16 year old, he doesn't even talk back to you. Your daughter doesn't slam the door every time you have a conversation with her and she walks away. You really love your husband. Wow. Is he different than mine? Man, the way you talk about your wife. Mm, I'd have to lie if I did that. <laughs> I mean there should be a tangible difference in the way we are than the way the world is and when they taste your life they ought to be able to say this tastes better this gives, this this is more savory than my bland stuff i'm doing and they realize that 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 different taste is having an effect it's just not making your taste buds happier It's having an effect in your entire life. It's stopping the corruptive elements that would lead people down the wrong road. We are to be preserving agents to the world. We can't stop the world system. We can't. But we can stop it in those people who are living and see the real life of God invade their soul. You're to be an influence. That's who you are. It's not what you're supposed to do. That's just who you are, and as a result of who you are, you do different than everybody else. Thirdly, we are to be an antiseptic. <laughs> now, this is a painful part, isn't it? I mean, salt has antiseptic properties. Uh, n- nobody wants salt to be applied to their wound. That is doubly painful. You almost, you almost say, that hurts more than the injury! And so you, you shy away. Can't we use other things that are less painful? Yeah, we got a lot of them out there. Go to Walgreens, CSS, CS, CSF, CVF, whatever it is. Yeah, go there. Find whatever antiseptic agent you've got. But they used to use salt. Salt would stop the bacteria and all the other stuff from getting in the wound and infecting the wound and making the condition of the man who has or the woman who has the the problem, worse. And sometimes we're that painful agent. There's a gaping wound relationally between two people. And we have to come in and say, you need to do this, it's going to be painful. But you need to do this. If you do this, your wound will get better. I know it will hurt immediately, but your wound will get better. You need to go back and apologize. You need to fix this. You need to make reparations here. You need to make restitution here. You need to fix it. Need to fix it. You do that, you repair stuff that's broken, and your wound will get better. If you don't, there are other things that might come in here and make it worse than it presently is. We are to be salt like that. To to individuals, to relationships, and help them get better. And then lastly, salt was used in moderate forms, measured forms, as an as an agent to fertilizer. So they realized when they took whatever helped plants grow and they added salt to it, it helped plants grow better. Now, if you add too much, it'll kill it. But they added just the right amount, and it helped plants grow better. When we are added to people's lives, we help them produce more. We help them be be more productive. They have an abounding harvest. If they were to produce 30-fold, as the word says over in the parable of the sower that we saw in the first week, now they could produce 60 because of the little bit of salt that was added to their life. So, Jesus says, You are the salt of the world. But then he says, If the salt has become useless. Now, when he speaks of this, He's not saying once you have mined out the salt, put it on your table. And it becomes now so diminished in its value that you now need to do something else with it because it can no longer be used for that which you mined it. He's not talking about that. He's saying this. If you have found salt, and salt is mined out of the earth. If you have found salt and you realize that it's combined with other stuff, to such a degree that it no longer can do what salt needed to do it's really not usable anymore meaning if it has become indistinguished from the rest of the material from which you mind it if there's no way to separate it then it is not useful for for that for which you mind it oh i'm telling you folks want to be relevant and i want to be relevant I'm not trying to be so religious that I make no sense to anybody. I'm trying to make sure the gospel makes sense to everybody. God makes sense. Now it may not make the kind of sense that people want in that they want to stick with their sin and do wrong all the time and still have the blessing of God. That makes no sense, but it makes sense to them. So I'm not trying to appeal to the nonsense of the sense that people think it's sense in the world when it's not. What I am trying to do is produce a sense that produces kingdom principles and fruit in people's lives. God makes sense. And relevance ought to make sense. Relevance means that you're able to bring answers to people's problems in ways that are non-religious in their orientation. But they are helpful meaning you don't need the garb of, if you're going to talk to somebody about how to save their marriage, hallelujah, oh, glory to God, we just need to pray. Now, now I'm not trying to be, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be belittling to any tradition. I'm just saying to somebody who has no idea what my sense of the Holy Spirit or the anointing feels like, I'm viewed as flat weird if I start doing that stuff. Bring my religious stuff into a relationship that has no relevance at all. I'm just trying to talk. Just trying to convey truth. And so I want to be relevant. But I also don't want to go to the other side. You know, one side is trying to prove you're so righteous and holy that you want the Holy Spirit to be involved in all you're doing, and, and sometimes you get a little bit overboard in your religiosity when, when God's not trying to convey himself like that. And then there's the other side who we say, "Well, you know, I really want to be their friend. I want them to know how much I love them." And so you don't just become relevant. you become a chameleon. You know what a chameleon is, right? It's a lizard. and it has such good camouflage that you can't tell the chameleon from the background it can change color if it's on a the the trunk of a tree it can become brown if it's on a leaf it it can become green you don't want to be somebody who is indistinguishable from the world so your buddies come to you and say hey we're going out tonight going to club 99 want to come this is, this, is, this, is a, this is a way for me to show I'm really with them. I love them. Well, okay, I ain't mad at you if you go to the club. I know you're sitting there and saying, Pastor, really? Well, wait a minute now. Let me finish. Let me finish. I ain't mad if you, if you go to the club. As long as you go to the club and don't do what they're doing, and you, 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 you become a light and witness about what club goers ought to do. Probably they won't ask you next time to go to the club. Probably not. Probably not. Because you won't be lapping up the alcohol like they lap up. You won't be grinding and bumping on the floor like they do. And you'll be praying for folks on a regular basis and ministering truth to them about how this environment is not helpful to their relational environment. You'll do everything you can to try to be different than them. And again, that will be the last time that you go to the club with them. Whenever Jesus hung around unbelievers, because he was never a chameleon, but he was always relevant, So relevant was he that the religious folk began to look at him and and accuse him properly of saying, your leaders, to the disciples now, he says, your leader hangs out with tax gatherers and sinners. How can he be a religious leader if he does that? The disciples had very little answers because they had never seen anybody do this before. But the reality is this, Jesus answered their question. He said, does a well person need a doctor? Who needs a doctor? The sick. Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to the sick. Their souls are messed up. They need help. So I'm going to them. By the way, when I hang out with women who work at night, they stop. When I hang out with drug dealers, they don't sell anymore. When I hang out with tax gatherers, they want to give all their money back to the poor. They start an economic revival in their community, i.e. Zacchaeus when Jesus walked into his house, he said, if I have taken anything from anybody, you don't need an if in front of that. You know you did. If I have taken anything from anybody, I will restore it fourfold and I give half of my resources to the poor. Wow. Now those religious leaders who were mad when Jesus said, I'm going to go eat at Zacchaeus' house. How can he eat with a tax gatherer? He's so messed up. His his standards are so low, so low. He can't be a righteous man. After Zacchaeus repented like he did, all the religious leaders were saying, hey, I got a tax gatherer you can see. (laughs) Word was getting around. Jesus changes tax gatherers and starts economic revival in the community. Wherever he went, That was seedy, that was less than, that was low on the totem pole with respect to social acceptance. He raised the bar. You can't become indistinguishable. Relevance that doesn't distinguish you doesn't help you or them. We're not looking for chameleons. You have to be different because you are. You are salt. You can't not but be your salt. Be it, even if it means it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable. Be who you are. And then lastly, he says, if you're indistinguishable, then you're unusable. So if the salt has lost its saltiness, its ability to do what you minded out to do. You weren't able to distinguish it. You weren't able to pull it out from the rest of the minerals of the earth. If you weren't able to do that, though you tried, it's good for, for nothing except to be thrown out in the street and trampled underfoot by men. I tell you one thing I don't want to be, and that's good, but for nothing. There are a lot of people who are good. Good with respect to their better than the worst. They're not good before God because no one can be. We're all criminals. We're all people who have broken about every law there is. We've done all bad. There's nothing good that, that can commend us before God as being worthy of his, his acceptance. And so the only way he accepts us is the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, paid our penalty, took our whooping for us uh, so that we don't have to suffer the wrongdoings suffered the consequences of our wrongdoings, uh, that's the only way we can be accepted before God. We aren't good enough. So if, if there's no way for the salt to be indistingu- distinguished from the rest of the material, then it's good. It's good. Still, there's nothing bad about it. It's just what it is. But it's for nothing. I don't want to be good nothing I don't want to be just a little bit better than the other people out there and not have an impact that helped change the world for better I want to be good but for something I want to be used by God and God is looking for people he can use he's looking for people he can use and they are so few and far between The writer of Chronicles says this. I think it's 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for a man for whom he might show himself strong. The rest of that passage talks about judgment because the man who it was being said about wasn't that guy. But it does give us a picture on what God is searching for. He's looking for somebody for whom, upon whose behalf, he can show himself strong. Your goal, my goal, should be to make his search short. Be the the person that volunteers. Don't make him have to look. You want to be useful? Make sure you separate all the stuff from your life that shouldn't be there so you can be the salt for which he mined you out of the earth. He mind you out to be salt. Be it. But if you're not, there's still some use for you, just not in God. Not in his perfect will. He says you're thrown out and, uh, in the street and, and, and you're trampled underfoot by men. Uh, the Middle East is, is depending upon where you go, but the northern part of Israel actually got snow certain times of the year and Jerusalem did too from time to time Um, we know that salt has properties that allow for the the melting temperature excuse me the freezing temperature of water to lower so that the snow and ice melt even though this kind of salt that was mined out was not useful for the table nor for preservation nor for antiseptic purposes because there were too many other impurities in there It was useful for one thing. It could lower the freezing temperature of water so that if snow was on the ground, ice was on the ground, they threw it out, and what did it do? It gave people traction to get where they needed to go. There are a lot of people in the Bible who weren't used the way they should have been used, the way God intended for them to be used. Samson? What what a man. I mean, unusual strength. Was able to accomplish things that no man has ever been able to accomplish. We think he was probably the basis upon which the Gentile world developed their idea of Hercules. But Samson had unusual strength but he also had problems morally and in order to accomplish his greatest victory he actually had to commit suicide he had problems with gambling, he had problems with vengeance, we don't see him ever worshipping, ever we don't see him ever praying except to complain one time he he had vanquished a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey not only is it is it really almost impossible? No, no way possible for a man by himself to kill off a thousand warriors who are trying to kill you. But he had an instrument that was ill-equipped for the task. Jawbone of a donkey. How are you going to kill people with molars? We're not talking about the jawbone of a lion, tiger, a donkey, a bunch of molars. Wow. Unusual feats of strength and power that evidenced the fact that God must be with this guy. But he never, ever prayed except to complain that after this victory with the Philistines, he asked God, after I've done such a good thing for you, are you going to let me die of thirst? That was his lone prayer to God in his entire ministry that we have recorded. And God opened up a, a well and allowed him to drink. He never really answered the call of God. God had to get him into his calling by luring him with his wayward eyes to a Philistine woman. And as a result of that, dominoes began to fall whereby he would go against the Philistines only because he was mad at them, not because he was supposed to be the, the deliverer for Israel. He never answered the call. He just did the stuff the calling required. I look at Samson's life. I think he was good but he wasn't used for the right reasons he didn't allow himself to be put in the hands of God he was used for other purposes in his own mind and he provides traction for me his life was poured out on the street and I get traction every day thinking don't go that way don't do that don't do that as I'm walking in my walk with God Samson helps me not to slip now my last point is you are unusable. Kind of a misnomer? Because you get used one way or the other. You either get used for good whereby you become a testimony like Paul. You say, I want to live like that. Like Peter, I want to live like that. Like John, I want to live like that. Like Elijah, I want to live like that. Like David, I want to live like that. Or you become like Samson and others who failed in Scripture. One way or the other, you get used as an example. I want to be used in the former, not the latter. I want to be salt to everybody with whom I come in contact, even if it's painful. Because I know the pain will last for a moment, but the blessing of God will last for a lifetime, indeed, for eternity. Let's pray.